<laughs> Stupid question. Did you ever look up the words to a song? No, I understand everything they're saying all the time. <laughs> Instantly and without assistance. It's not even perfect pitch. It's uh, perfect transcription. You could you could bottle that and sell it. Um, yeah, I looked up the lyrics to a They Might Be Giants song. Um, oh, wow. As one does. That's an education. In- well, and realized that I had been getting the lyrics wrong the entire time in a very subtle way that actually made a difference. I think you're going to have to give a full example here. Um, I, I would need to remember the exact song. I think it's They'll Need a Crane. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, you know what it was? I remember now. It's the He Wants a Shoehorn, the kind with teeth. Oh, right. And I thought that the lyric was, people shouldn't get beat up for stating their beliefs. But the actual lyric is, people should get beat up for stating their beliefs. That's not, that's very different. I know, right? Like, oh, that one very minor change completely shifts the tone of the song. Right. From a, oh, he has this silly belief, but let's just let him have it, to no. Elbow drop, top rope. And um, I'm not sure how I feel about that now. Well, I assume the whole song is sarcastic, so the fact that they're being pro-violence is ironic. Oh, could be. All right, we could interpret that way, and it makes me feel better. Right. It's hard. So I read this interview with the guys. They're both named John, aren't they? Yes. John and John. Yes. Two different spellings, though. Two different names, really. Uh, totally different. Jan and John, as we as we all know. Um, and they said that people try to read too much into their lyrics. Yeah. And in reality, it's no more deep than exactly what's on the tin. What rhymes and what fits the meter, it's in the song. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, And it makes me a little happy. Well, I mean, that's the case with almost, well, not all, but like a lot of creative media. Even the the person that wrote it goes, I don't know, man. That's, there it is. Knock yourself out. But also like, sometimes when it's a song about Lincoln... Our, our valiant president. It's just a song about Lincoln. It's not like right. a meta commentary. <laughs> Maybe that's like sometimes things are. Our current media landscape is so dripping in irony and meta and all that stuff that for something to just mean exactly what it means is really weird like and this, refreshing. <laughs> this song's clearly referencing race relations in Chile. Uh, no, it's a it's a sam- song about playing baseball with my friends. <laughs> Put him in, coach. <laughs> Castro. Oh, should we? We must. And we shall. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. My optical receptors perceive the same spectrum of light as yours. I definitely do not prefer things in UV when hunting the most dangerous prey in the Amazon basin. Man. I got it. Okay, okay. I got it. Okay. With me is Chris, who is also here, and not being hunted in the steamy jungle by an unstoppable killing machine. Luckily, I've learned everything I need to know from a uh, documentary called Predator. I'm familiar with it, yes. So you're in trouble. Yeah, all you have to do is roll around in mud. Yep, that's completely how it works. And it will completely mask Everybody your IR. knows that... Mud is a 100% isolator of not only light, but heat. That's right. It is not conductive at all, especially water. Right. 
That's why I cover all the inside and outside walls of my house with mud. Yes, naturally, it's wet mud. It's efficient, Ned. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> you know, they build, they, they build houses out of adobe, which is essentially clay and mud. Right, but then and the company came around and ruined all of that threw a DMCA claim at all of them, and they had to knock down all the adobe houses. <laughs> See where you're going with that. I hate that it might be true. <laughs> oh, let's talk about some other tech garbage. Let's indeed. Okay. So, security is a thing that's important. Eh. Convenience for users is a thing that users think is super important. <laughs> yeah. Finding a balance between the two is often difficult. There is absolutely such a thing as security versus convenience and convenience going too far. No, I need things to be very convenient or I won't do them. The trouble is users understand security only as a necessary evil and in some cases mm -hmm. drop the word necessary. Yes. So anything that can be done to make it less onerous on end users should make whatever technology we're talking about more likely to be adopted. There Vastly are, more likely to be adopted. There are downsides to this, because if we see security versus convenience as a seesaw, obviously there's going to be. Making security too easy for the end user can often open new attack vectors for bad actors to exploit. Interesting. So you try to develop a security solution that is convenient enough for grandma to use, but then because it's so simple, it leaves itself wanting in terms of security. Let's call them unexpected features. <laughs> so one attack like this that has been making the rounds is what is called MFA fatigue. It's a social engineering attack, more or less, but it relies on MFA push technology. So this is when you have the little app, Microsoft Authenticator, or whatever. Lots of apps do it. I'm not going to... I'm going to use the word Microsoft a lot, but think about it just as the trend in general, rather than taking shots at Microsoft. Typical. <laughs> I just picked the name completely at random. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. But anyway, push means the Authenticator app will tell you, hey, you are trying to log into this website, accept or deny. And then you push the button that says accept. It takes the MFA as valid, assuming it was registered, and boom, you're into your application. Right. But do you see a problem with this design? No, it seems completely infallible. The problem is, uh, first of all, you were wrong. Um, <laughs> that's not really a problem. No, that's, that's just that's, a constant state of affairs. The problem is attackers can cause login attempt requests hundreds and hundreds of times, causing you, and in essence your device, to receive hundreds of MFA push requests. Mm -hmm. This can then cause you to either accidentally hit accept, after all, we're human, it happens. Some of us. Or just hit accept to stop the barrage, mm. which happens and is successful more often than I want to talk about. Just make it stop? Yeah. Attackers will often use this technique along with other social engineering moves, such as calling or emailing, pretending to be IT, and can you please just hit accept so we can fix your account? Mm, that's a good one. So I can imagine a situation where I, as the attacker, call you and say that there's a problem with your Microsoft account, because that is... Right, fairly, totally random, of course. Of course. And that we need to fix your password 
And so I'm going to send you a text message and I just need you to either read the numbers in the message or click accept and then we can fix the password. And so then I, as the attacker, try to log into the website using your username and password, which I've scraped from some database. You get the MFA request and say, okay. And then I tell you your password has been reset to bleh, whatever it is. It's a good password actually. And you proceed on your merry way, all the while I also now have your updated password and I can reset your MFA. Exactly, and the way that this works is kind of a force multiplier, right? So if you got a message just out of the blue from pretending to be IT, you would be a little suspicious. Indeed. Um, but if your device is going bizarro with requests to log into a website, in addition to getting that kind of a message, it might cause you to be a little bit overwhelmed and just say, all right, this seems like a big problem. Let's get it fixed with my new friend Gerald from IT. Oh, Gerald. He's, he's so kind. Isn't he just? He brought the, in cupcakes. And he has dreamy eyes. You could just <laughs> fall into those blue abysses forever. So that's really the thing. The two things working together is the attack. Mm -hmm. And standard MFA, or I shouldn't really call it standard MFA, but the, the earlier version was TOTP, right? Which is just an acronym that annoyingly stands for time-based one-time <laughs> passcode. Because oh, we can't make anything right. That's the famous six-digit number that is generated by either an application like Microsoft Authenticator can do it, Google Authenticator, or a physical device like a YubiKey or whatever. You get that six-digit code, you punch it in along with your password, and then you get into the application or right. website that you wanted. So the major difference here is how that MFA is validated. With push technologies, your device is asking you. It is bothering you. Yes. With TOTP, the page just sits there and waits for mm -hmm. more information. Mm -hmm. So this means that the fatigue attack is impossible with TOTP because nothing is pestering you. Right. So if you don't have that opportunity to spam your device with 100 requests a minute, you can't get that force multiplier overloading somebody who maybe not technically savvy in the first place. Now, I mean, one obvious and very simple fix to the fatigue problem would be to put a rate limiter on the login requests. We'll get to that. Okay. Stop reading ahead. <laughs> I didn't. It just <laughs> seems, I don't know, obvious? <laughs> so what you're saying is that the old way, way more secure, we should all go back to TOTP. That's my general thesis, yes. Or we could go back to NKOTP. They had a bunch of hits. I heard about that. <laughs> Chinese food makes me sick, though. Uh, you make me sick. <laughs> Carry on. So, to be clear, though, TOTP is good, but there are ways to get TOTP that are not good. Some old technologies are not better. Mm. And this is probably just an easy reminder for everybody, but you can get TOTP from, say, a text message to your phone. Hmm. So you don't have to have a token-creating device. Your multi-factor is the fact that you have an email address or a, or a cell phone number or whatever. Right. But the big problem here, which we've talked about in various incarnations of this show over the time, uh, is SIM swapping. Yes. Physical device. Hacker gets social engineering against AT&T or Verizon. Um, gets control of your phone number. Mm -hmm. Then when the TOTP request goes out to that number, there it is. The hacker has it, and you're... In trouble. Yes, that's that's one of many ways that SMS can be hacked. Right, and email is not any better. You know, instead of it being texted to you via SMS, the code is emailed to you. 
now it's your email address that is susceptible to attack. Mm -hmm. You know, and that opens up a lot of other vectors if you have compromised devices on your network. Or if you do something crazy, like leave your email logged in, which none of us ever do, right? Never. Every time you're Go. done with an application, you, you responsibly log out, clear all cookies, turn the computer off, put it in a safe in the back of your deep freezer. Yes, and then nuke it from orbit. <laughs> it's the only way to be sure. <laughs> but now we'll talk about what you were whining about. I mean, talking about. Yes, in terms all right, of fine. The fixes for MFA fatigue. And the problem is, to fix the problems we just opened up by using MFA push, right. you have to stack more technology of some type on top of it. Which then can lead to more vectors of attack and more problems. Exactly. Okay. It turtles all the way down. Huzzah. <laughs> so companies completely picked out of random, like Microsoft, for example, are trying to meet customers halfway. Microsoft has a security enhancement for Authenticator called number matching. Now, this is in preview. Other companies have it as well. Um, but what happens here when you have number matching enabled, the user logs in to yep. a website, mm -hmm. username and password, push notification goes out to the device. Same MFA push as before. But what happens next is the website will show you a number. And then you punch that number into your device. So you're in, in effect, you're authenticating yourself twice via MFA. One is pushing the button to accept. Then the website shows you a number. You punch that into the authenticator. Right. So... What? That isn't. That's been around for a while. It has, yeah. It's. So. I think it's the default way that you use MFA with Google, and particularly like if I log into Google from a different account, it'll do that exact same thing. Right. So Microsoft Authenticator, I, I know, does the has been doing this for a while for particular accounts. So when I get a prompt from Authenticator, it will first tell me select the number that's shown yeah. on the screen, and then touch approve and that will take you through the login process. What it doesn't do is then prompt me for a code. It's purely just pick the number you see and hit approve, and there's usually four numbers. Okay, yeah, this was literally you type in the number you see on the screen. So this might be, because it's in preview, maybe it's been changing over time? They might be altering it a little bit to make it even more robust, right? in theory. But to me, it just feels like TOTP with extra steps. <laughs> Yeah, it just means that as the social engineer, I now have to prompt them through an additional hurdle. Right. And as we've talked about before, this is not necessarily bad because even the smallest of hurdles will turn off X amount of attackers because it's just not worth the aggravation anymore. Right. They'll find another vector. So the trouble here, though, is you still haven't eliminated the possibility of spamming the device because mm -hmm. you still have a million requests for uh, accept or deny sending to your device. And... This is another audience for these attacks is people who are fooled to thinking that IT is requesting that access. <laughs> now, if you are already down that road, this Microsoft additional feature isn't going to help you because the attacker will just say, oh, now please type in 8-6 or whatever right. the number is that they see on their screen. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it helps enough to, to merit like applause. Applause, no, but at least it's something. Which is kind of funny because I actually put in here, so I applaud Microsoft, and then we get into the recording, I'm like, nah. <laughs> Fair. But, you know, I just, again, I can't help but think that the easier way to do this is just not to use MFA push. So, I want to 
do a little detour here and talk about a different example of a simpler solution to a problem. Okay. So work with me here. In any country that has cars, mm. cars are a problem. Yes. So get rid of cars. Perfect. <laughs> Episode <laughs> over. All right. <laughs> First of all, there is a tremendous amount of disrespect in the human mind for the power that invests in anybody who is driving a vehicle. <laughs> and actually, to impart the damage that I'm talking about, let's stop using the phrase vehicle and call them what they are. 3,500 pound death machines. Yes. Some even bigger than that. USA. USA. <laughs> the faster you go in your death machine, the worse it's going to be if you make contact with anything. Indeed. So speeding bad. Uh-huh. People still have no problem speeding. None whatsoever. And in America, we try to stop this with technology. Automated speed tra traps. We try to stop it with policy. Points on your license. Mm -hmm. We try to stop it with celebrities. Famous commercials all the way back to the 40s and 50s. One starring James Dean who ironically two days later died in an auto accident. Oh, life is funny. Yeah, and we also have, of course, NASCAR and Sammy Hagar doing a number one hit with I Can't Drive 55. So let's just say we've got something of a mixed message. And um, we also have the uh, international franchise known as The Fast and the Furious. <laughs> so yeah, slightly mixed messages there on... Family. <laughs> it's about family and death machines. So... We have a bunch of policy technology tacked on to an obvious problem. These are super expensive and difficult solutions that only kind of work. And even then, not really. Right. Just think about how you feel when you're behind a car that is doing the exact speed limit. And deep breaths. <laughs> she knows she's making me late, Ned. <laughs> and, yeah, it, the the standard assumption, I don't know if this is consistent across the country, but if you're not doing at least five over, you're going too slow. Right. Which is an annoying problem in and of itself. But really what we want to stop is people speeding. And a lot of South American countries, and I think this actually happens all worldwide, but these are the ones I'm familiar with, have an interesting solution to the problem of speeding. <laughs> they are called sleeping policemen. And what they are are giant random speed bumps plopped at odd intervals on the roads, especially rural roads. Ooh. So sometimes there's a sign for them. Sometimes there's not. <laughs> Surprise! If you hit one going, let's say a rural road and make up some numbers, if you hit one going 40 full speed, it's going to be uncomfortable. If you hit it at 80, you're going to bottom out your car and probably give yourself and your passengers whiplash. Wow. So they're not like the speed bumps that you're imagining in your head that are like 12 inches wide. They're like three feet wide. So if you hit it at speed, the car will go up in the air and come down on the ramp that is the other side of the sleeping policeman. Ouch. So talk about disincentivizing people from speeding on random rural roads. Yes. And all it took was, I don't know, $150 of concrete? True. Of course... I'm sure people are using technology to avoid those by using some sort of mapping technology to... Well, the question is, how are you going to avoid them if that's the only way to go? Somebody else will mark where they are, and you'll speed between them. <laughs> that's true. But it's still better than... At least that way you're encouraging an active driver, 
right? It's still better than somebody just blindly going 80 miles an hour down a rural road Mm -hmm. indefinitely. As I often do. And that's really the that's really the thing the the value versus the security gained, mm-hmm. right? Sleeping policemen cost nothing. You install them one time, they might have to be replaced. What I don't know how long a speed bump lasts every ten years, <laughs> right? That's a heck of a lot better than saying we need to take time away from the police department, so we're going to hire X amount more employees, and all they're going to do is speed traps. Yes, I've often thought that speed traps are a waste of money and don't improve safety. Correct. Okay. But they do give the police a nice chance to nap. Allegedly. Alleg- no. That- <laughs> so sometimes you can over-engineer the solution to a problem and overvalue the convenience. In the same terms, how much time does MFA push save you? I mean, really? Five seconds? As opposed to... TOTP. TOTP. I would argue that it doesn't really save me much in the way of time. Right, because you still have to open the app. You still have to click a button and interact with it. Mm -hmm. How is that any better than just going to your TOTP app, looking up the name of the site that you need, and punching in a six-digit code? It does seem about the same, almost equivalent. Right. And there are other solutions to MFA fatigue that have been proposed, but they all come with their own problems. So if you want to say too many requests from one account for MFA, let's say 10, like you were saying before, Mm -hmm. that locks the account. Well, that just means that a valid user can now be forcibly disabled. Right. You've basically set up a denial of service attack for user accounts. Exactly. Too many requests from one IP or one phone number means that that IP or phone number gets locked. Hmm. Well, that just means that hackers have to use multiple sources to attack from. Boy, that seems difficult. Not at all. (laughs) Said no one ever. Right. So really, to me, the solution seems to be TOTP. Eliminate the concepts in your mind of push notifications entirely, and you eliminate this threat vector entirely. Mm -hmm. Even in their comments about the MFA fatigue issue, company that I picked completely randomly, Microsoft, thinks that this is the way. Alex Weinert, director of IT, or I'm sorry, director of identity security, clearly stated, quote, the most effective mechanism is to avoid methods which allow simple approvals which are subject to fatigue. He goes on to say, this prevents any bad experiences triggered by the adversary by pushing unexpected notifications, end quote. Hmm. You eliminate that 1% of convenience for 95% more security. Right? All right. Maybe I'm overstating it. So let's scale that back. 1% of convenience for 50% more security. That seems like a good trade-off. It does. And if you really need the convenience, my understanding of YubiKey is that you could have a TOTP type style authentication, but instead of inputting a number, you can just tap your YubiKey and it'll put a code in for you if it's connected via USB to the device that you're working on. Right. And so... You get the convenience factor back, but now you have a physical token that you need to keep track of. <laughs> Not lose. Yes. Well, there's always backup codes. Yeah. So there is some recourse. But yeah, that's I've, I've been seriously thinking about buying a YubiKey for at least my desktop because that thing sits in the same place all the time. And if I just plug a YubiKey in, that'll be plugged in there all the time. Right. Makes my life that much easier on that specific device. Which, considering that's where you do most of your work... That's a benefit. Right. And when I'm working remotely, maybe I want the additional hassle 
of having to pull out my phone and enter in a code because when I'm working remotely, I want systems to go, you're trying to log in from an IP address that we haven't seen before. We'd like an additional level of security here. Right. Yeah, and when you go through those types of things, there's different ways that you can get more security. And you know, one of the things that you said was, oh, if you lose it, you still have backup codes. That is something I think that a lot of users are legitimately afraid of and don't understand. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, I'm not even being like dismissive here. It's it's complicated. Like, first of all, backup codes are one of those things that are like we're only going to show you this once. Yep. And <gasps> if you don't have it saved, then you do lose your device. Then you have to go through a heck of a lot of hassle in order to get access restored. Mm -hmm. You know, worst case scenario, let's say you have a device that MFA secures your password manager and you lose that. The amount of effort that you have to go through for LastPass, for example, to reassert you as you and give you a new MFA is rightfully a lot. Onerous, one might That's say. That's good. I like that word. Thank you. So people can be really afraid that, well, all, if I lose this device, then I lose all of my passwords because I've now put all my eggs in one basket or something like that. Right. So, I mean, there's other services that exist that you can do a little more creatively, like Authy is a great service for people who want, are concerned about this. So you have your account with Authy, and you can't lose Authy. <laughs> Authy is a company. Or actually, Twilio is the company. But it doesn't mean if you can't lose a device called Authy. It's online. Right. Now, some people might be paranoid about that, and for super secure locations, that might not cut it. But it's a good solution that kind of meets halfway keep track of TOTP. You don't necessarily have as much fear of losing and requiring backup codes because it's online. Mm -hmm. And the company's been around forever. So why not give it a shot? Mm. And if you're using your phone, imagine losing your phone. <laughs> There's a lot of things that you'd be worried about. Right. Yes. I think in terms of security versus convenience... The main thing that you have to weigh there is how badly does the person need to use your thing? Mm -hmm. And that has a direct line to how much security you can apply to that thing. Because if it's something that they have to interact with, they don't have a choice, you can require a higher level of security because they have to jump through your hurdles no matter what. But if it's a new service that you're trying to get people to sign up for, if you make the security too onerous, then they're just going to skip to the next thing, unless it's a security product that where they're expecting it to be difficult. Right. So I think that's one of the main drivers behind this seesaw. And if I can tie this back to last week... You may not. The decentralized identity idea, mm -hmm. being able to use something like that mm -hmm. as your authentication mechanism puts you back in the driver's seat in terms of authentication and storage of credentials. Right. I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking, and this might be something for a later time, is like to really do a deep dive into like passwordless mm. and how, show how that kind of it takes this next logical step. Whereas right now we're kind of I, – I mean, I think MFA push is a kludge. I think we can do better than this. Yes. And we shall. And we shall. But it needs to be something that is consumable by people who aren't us. Correct. Yeah. Or even our me when I'm you know lightly buzzed on a Friday night. <laughs> One, six, four, six, eight, four. That's so many numbers. Three. <laughs> one, 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 one. It should work. <laughs> oh, what if it did work all the time on everything? And that'd be awful. I think I remember one time I got a, a, a TOTP that was eight, eight, nine, 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 and it freaked me out. 
<laughs> Even though random numbers should right. be truly random, and that is just a number, the fact that you assign significance to it because it seems too purposeful? Right. <laughs> no, that can't possibly. It's like when people look at uh, clusters that are randomly created, and if they're not evenly distributed, they think that something weird is going on. Right. And it's like, no, this clusters naturally happen in random generated stuff. I don't like it. I don't like it. I want my random to be less random, please. That actually happened with uh, early iterations of the iPod. Mm-hmm. It had a shuffle mechanism right. that was truly random, or as close to random as a computer-generated random thing can be. And people didn't like it because they felt that it wasn't evenly covering the catalog of music they had. And it was playing the same song twice occasionally, which happens with true randomness. <laughs> so people who were like, I needed to be more random, and what they meant was actually less. Random-ish. Yes. <laughs> Random adjacent. <laughs> oh, now we have an episode title. Perfect. <laughs> Excellent. Lightning round? Let's do it. Linux 6.0 kernel coming in the next week. Linus Torvalds has confirmed that release candidate 7 of version 6.0 of the Linux kernel should become the official release due out sometime in the next week. Originally, Linus thought that there might be an RC8 due to a glut of pull requests coming through as folks returned from holiday. That particular scenario has not transpired, and so, pending any other weirdness, RC7 will become the official release. That's certainly going to be exciting for Linux aficionados who like to live on the bleeding, but stable, edge. Linux Kernel 6.0 brings with it several new features and improvements, including a new in-kernel SMB3 server for improved multi-channel performance and the formal deprecation of SMB1, which you weren't using anyway, right? Right. <coughs> Better support for RISC-V architectures, including support for using Docker with RISC-V. Better power management via ACPI will also be added for the newer Intel and AMD chipsets and support for Intel's Gaudi 2 accelerators bundled in for improved machine learning performance. Keep an eye out for the newest version of the kernel to start dropping in your favorite Linux distributions in the not-too-distant future. CIS benchmarks for Azure and AWS updated to version 1.5. The Center for Internet Security, a community-driven IT security consortium that brings together best practices for hundreds of platforms, device models, and applications, has released version 1.5 of their general benchmarks. Aside from conforming with new and evolving security best practices, 1.5 also brought about full compatibility and new libraries for Python. People love the Python these days. Sure do. This enables a lot of automated tooling to confirm and enforce compliance. Earlier this month, specific updates came out for Azure and AWS. The updates on the Azure side included 32 new changes in IAM, conditional access, database services, and more, while AWS saw five. As the benchmarks evolve, they often start to include concepts like defense in depth. For example, in AWS, RDS instances should never be visible to the public. (laughs) Version 1.5 enforces this best practice First, by setting public access to no, which, (laughs) good lord, but also by confirming the VPC subnet for RDS can only route internally. This can be an important step. Since CIS benchmarks can be confirmed programmatically, it's also a step that can be confirmed quickly and easily. If you happen to be on the Azure side of things, you can use Azure Security Center to check your compliance with 1.5 of the standard. 
<sighs> Different name, same old shit. Facebook continues to be awful. Why don't we just rename them awful? Ooh, I like that. Or awful. Or awful. We'll workshop it. Yeah. Facebook, who I refuse to call meta on the grounds that it is stupid, pointless, and deliberately deceptive. Oh, wow. This is kind of just like Facebook itself. Wait, Facebook is being sued under allegations that the company defied Apple's iPhone privacy feature and terms of service to continue spying on users. Remember back when Apple rolled out App Tracking Transparency, ATT, and Facebook instantly lost $10 billion in ad revenue? Oh, I was so sad. Okay, well, that number might be a little inflated to hide all the other problems plaguing the company at the moment, but still. The notification that asks you if you would like to prevent app tracking, well, that can't be helping things. Security researcher Felix Krauss discovered that when you open a link inside of the Facebook or Instagram app, the website is opened using an in-app browser and Facebook can continue to track you from within the app without technically violating the ATT rules. While it is technically true, true, it doesn't violate the rules in the strictest sense. It is slimy and underhanded. Par for the course, really. And so a group of users in California have filed a class action lawsuit against Facebook for violations of the California Invasion of Privacy Act, federal wiretapping statute, and California's competition rules. Facebook has fired back, not by disputing what they were doing. <laughs> no, instead... They have spun it as a privacy-enhancing feature that respects ATT. I have to say it takes some chutzpah to say that with a straight face. I'm surprised that Facebook spokesperson Andy Stone's pants weren't immediately consumed in a blazing inferno. Just remember, kids, Facebook is free because you are the product. I agree with all that, but I do want to say for, for the record that when I first read through this, I thought you wrote... I'm surprised Facebook spokesperson Andy Stone's parents weren't immediately consumed in a blazing inferno. <laughs> Which was like, wow! <laughs> Slightly harsher, but also funnier. I retract my previous statement. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Morgan Stanley hit with fine for, quote, astonishing security failures going back as far as 2015. Hmm. Now, we all know that when replacing a computer, it's important to think about disposal, not only for environmental reasons, but also for data protection reasons. Mm -hmm. Now, there are many ways to safely destroy the data on a hard disk from a simple all zeros or all ones write to the DOD level seven pass procedure to literally physically destroying the disk with either a huge magnet or a disk shredder. Or both. Side note, if you've never used a disk shredder, I highly encourage you to give it a shot. It's super fun. <laughs> Hashtag does it blend. Get it? Yes. Get it? No. I knew it. Anyway, with all those options at hand, Morgan Stanley chose their own path. As one does. Hire a moving company to just take it all away and hope for the best. <laughs> because after all, the lowest bidder is always the best bidder, right? Yeah. <sighs> The company moved, quote, thousands of Morgan Stanley devices out of Morgan Stanley data centers and promptly sold a lot of them on eBay. 
It yeah, will right. not surprise you to know that these devices were not erased in any way, shape, or form, causing the sensitive data of some 15 million customers to immediately be put at risk. This week, Morgan Stanley was fined a whopping $35 million for mm. the stupidity of their actions. I say whopping with the airiest of air quotes because that equates to, what, $2 per at-risk user? Or if you want to think about it in different terms, 0.25% of their net profit from the previous year. So, yeah, great deterrent to horrific behavior. Thanks, SEC. I'd say Morgan Stanley has definitely learned their lesson. They did learn their lesson. Security doesn't cost us that much to, uh, to ignore. <laughs> Limited capacity plus more users equals slower speed. What? As predicted, the increased user base for Starlink has resulted in lower download speeds for everyone. And the reason behind it is simple. There are a limited number of satellites in space serving internet to the Starlink consumers. As more people purchase Starlink gear and get online with space internet, so cool, the total amount of available bandwidth remains constant and they each get a smaller slice. How much of a slowdown are we talking about here? The median download speed in the U.S. dropped from 90.6 megabits per second to 62.5 megabits per second in the second quarter of 2022. Until more satellites are launched, those numbers will continue to decline as the subscriber base reaches over the 1 million user mark. While 60 megabits per second is still pretty good, it is below the 100 megabits per second threshold that the FCC is looking for to award grants. And therein lies the real concern. In order for Starlink to keep up with demand, they need to add to their current roster of 3,000 satellites in orbit. That costs money. Starlink has been depending on grants from the FCC to help offset the cost of launching more satellites into space. And their most recent award was pulled due to these lower speeds. Now Starlink is making the argument that they need the funding to deliver the speed that the FCC desires. Will the new leadership at the FCC be swayed? Or will Starlink need to jack up prices on their existing user base to fund more bandwidth? Only time will tell. Space time. Also, I find it ironic that anti-government nutjob Elon Musk is now relying on the government has relied on the government for, for all of his businesses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you remember that when he whines about taxes. Not only do floppy disks still exist, there are still active customers for them. Mm -hmm. One thing I can promise you is by the end of this article, you will barely be able to tolerate the word floppy. I had trouble at the I've beginning. I said it twice and I'm already <laughs> upset. So we all remember these, right? Yep. The five and a half inch version that actually flopped. Woo! Then the hard three and a halfers that we all used 15 of which to install Windows from back in the day. Mm -hmm. Floppy disks were so pervasive that the icon for save in many applications is still shaped like one. Mm -hmm. But they're outdated, to say the least. A three and a half inch floppy disk can store a mere 1.44 megabytes of data, which isn't enough to store the average MP3. However, did you know there are still many, many floppy disk applications out there in the world? Tom Persky of floppydisk.com, awesome website name, talk about getting in early, <laughs> highlights one. Airplanes, or airlines, I should say. Ooh. Now, if you think about this, it makes some sense. The vast majority of commercial airliners in the world and flying today are more than 20 years old. 
Now, this is good. We want planes to last. Yes. If I'm getting into a metal cylinder that goes 30,000 feet in the sky, I don't want it to be disposable. Indeed. This also means that in-place upgrades to the airplane is bad. A design that is expected to have a 50-year lifespan does not generally account for the upgrades of electronics. So floppy disks are still very necessary for in-airplane data transfers. Huh. This falls in line with a lot of things in this if-it-ain't-broke-don't-fix-it category. Things that people probably know about, like air traffic control still using 50-year-old mainframes. Trillions of trillions of dollars in the economy flowing through COBOL code that was written when your parents were kids. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yep. And for these kinds of use cases, even the old forgotten floppy disk doesn't appear to be broken. Yeah, I said it. Aside from floppydisk.com, they're just a little harder to come by these days. Mm-hmm. There was something that rolled through Japan recently where they're trying to outlaw floppy disks, as well as some other technologies that they consider antiquated. Yeah, I saw that. I was confused by it, and I ran away. And they're having a real difficult time implementing <laughs> it because people love their stuff, and they don't want to change it. Fair. I, I'm sure I will get to that point very soon as I age in this completely organic body. Hey, listen, Hey, thanks for listening or something. Uh, I guess you found it worthwhile if you made it to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now grab yourself a bag of pizza combos, an RC cola, and plop down to watch the masterpiece that is the original Predator documentary. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and Hainer80, respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. We also have stickers if you want. Send me a message and I will send you some stickers. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. Like, By we, I mean you. Ah, uh, yeah, that sounds about right.